calling all ninjas, calling all ninjas. It's time for Lime Ninja Radio. Hello, Lime Ninjas. This is Lime Ninja Radio, where we help you navigate confidently through your own personal Lime journey. Everybody's journey is different, and a cookie-cutter approach just won't work for Lyme disease. You need some ninja skills. I'm your host and acupuncturist, McKay Rippey, and this is episode number 130. Can you believe that, Aurora? 130. 130. We've been at this a while now. A hundred sound, a hundred feels like only yesterday. (laughs) (laughs) Only yesterday. And 30 weeks ago is 130. So that's almost, that's half a year, right? Let's have a year. That's incredible. Anyway, episode number 130 with Lime Ninja Sarah McNamara. Now, you're going to love listening to this interview with Sarah. She really understanding kind of the medical educational system, and she has some incredible insights that I think you'll find enlightening and and heartening, really. Uh, There is hope for the future. Also, of course, I'd like you to welcome with me to the studio our show producer and the brains behind Lime Ninja Radio, Aurora. Hello, everybody. And in this episode, you will learn the crucial importance of being your own patient advocate, strategies to handle your medical records, and how to work around the various shortcomings of the modern healthcare system. Yes, indeed. All those points are so important, and we've covered each in other episodes, but they can't be made often enough in different voices and slightly different ways. I think you'll find these, again, this interview, such an important interview to help you navigate through the medical system. So please listen all the way through and share this with your friends. I think it'll help them a lot. All right, Aurora, also on the home page. We've got our email course on genetic nutrition, so you can just pop one over there and sign up for that. And thank you, everyone who's subscribing. We've got a couple new subscribers this week, so I just want to say a shout-out. for You've spent the time to come on over to our website, LimeNinjaRadio.com, and click on the subscribe button. We really, really appreciate it. There are three levels, Ninja, Sensei, and Daimyo, so something for everybody's budget. Okay, Aurora, why don't you tell us a little bit more about today's guest. Sarah McNamara worked in Boston as a residency coordinator when she started having symptoms. She was diagnosed with POTS while she was in Boston, but her health continued to deteriorate. Eventually, she became unable to continue her career there and moved back home to Syracuse to take better care of her health and to pursue an online master's in health communication. It took three years before she was diagnosed with Lyme disease. Today, she has returned to her career in the medical field and also works as a patient advocate for people with Lyme disease. Thank you, Aurora, and here is our interview with Lime Ninja, Sarah McNamara. Hello, Sarah. This is McKay Rippey from Lime Ninja Radio. Hi, McKay. It's so nice to talk to you this February morning. <laughs> uh, this now cold February morning after our 70-degree day the last couple of days. It is incredible, this up-and-down weather. We've had, what, feet of snow that have melted and come back about four or five times now this year? <laughs> it's essential New York. This is what we signed yes. up for. That's right. So for those of you listening, in case you haven't figured out, Sarah's almost a neighbor of mine. Uh, so we're, we're in the same part of the country. And we met, of course, on Facebook. And did we meet at that conference as well? The we did. We met at, um, officially met at Dr. Strand's, uh, conference in collaboration with Nature Time. Yeah. That was a, that was a wonderful event. Met a lot of good people there. So, Sarah, let's jump right in. What's fascinating to me, and this is why I, everything, rela- <laughs> I'm going to tell one on myself here, right? It's, it's all about me, people. <laughs> this podcast isn't about you. It's really right, about me. So, right. my wife, <laughs> Uh, early on in our marriage, she worked for the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health in their PR department. And you have oh, a master's in health communication. 
So how did you get interested in health communication? Because it's a fascinating field. Really? Um, wow, that's, that's, that's very ironic because there aren't a lot of programs um, in health communication. So um, I got interested. Um, in fact, I had always said I would never go on to do a master's. I was all set after my bachelor's. I wasn't a very good student. Um, but after I got a one of my first kind of big girl jobs in Boston, um, I was a residency coordinator. I was working with physicians all the time. And I started to understand the value of communications in healthcare and among physicians as well as among physicians and their patients. Um, I found I was working at Boston University's affiliated hospital, which is Boston Medical Center. And Boston University had a health communications program that you could do strictly online. So it was pretty much the exact right fit at the exact right time. That's amazing. And what would you, have you worked on specific projects with that job or with that uh, degree? Um, With the job in Boston in particular? No, no, no. With the master's in in health communication. Like, is there any project that you took on that's like, wow, this was really cool? Oh, oh, yeah. I mean, we, as part of the master's program, we had to do um, a couple specific projects. We had to, you know, create a world where we, you know, had a job doing that. Um, I think professionally, I've certainly, you know, we deal a lot when you're in graduate medication, medical education, which is what that's called when you work with residents or undergraduate medical education. I've worked with students as well. You deal a lot with evaluation. Um, so there's a communication factor when you're, you're dealing with those, the evaluations of how Something's going, how a resident's performing, how a student's performing, um, and um, you have to use a lot of communications um, tact. You, um, you know, yeah, I mean, it, it's one of those things where I can't believe I had to have an education where I use it almost every day um, in, in the various positions that I've had. So, yes, absolutely. Now, here's a question. We'll go right into the deep end here, cannonball into the deep end. How come something like Ebola just, like, takes over everybody's mind and everybody's aware of it or swine flu or some of these other things? And Lyme disease just kind of like a slug just kind of creeps along behind. Uh, that's, that's a wonderful, wonderful question. Um A lot of that is what I would call media hysteria. Um, I think there are so many unknowns with something like Ebola, which you could obviously say the same for Lyme disease. Um, But I think the media gets a hold of it, and it goes from there. Or the CDC, you know, lets a press release out that is indicative of some kind of hysteria that the media can grab a hold of. And of course that's what grabs our attention anyway. Um, I wish Lyme had the same um, effect as it is obviously an endemic um, or as epidemics. And um, I think that's why when you have celebrities like Avril Lavigne, who are very uh, vocal about it on social media and interviews, and I've certainly seen interviews on TV and with the press, um, I don't want someone to ever have Lyme disease, but I do think that um, it's very, very nice to get that message out there. Um, certainly not to the extent of something like Ebola, but um, yes, uh, media hysteria would be my answer to that. So another way of putting this, and forgive me for being super gruesome, but essentially Lyme disease doesn't kill fast enough to get people's right. attention. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, it certainly does slowly, um, you know, progress into people's lives. if not taking care of um, that initial phase, which we all know. So, Yes, you do know, don't you? You have Lyme disease. I have Lyme disease. Um, I do. I have a uh, I'm, I'm one of the lucky ones. I got hit pretty hard, um, but I've made... Um, I've had antibiotic treatment and I've made, uh, you know, lifestyle changes that have really, 
I think, kept me on the straight and narrow for a while now. So, obviously, like any Lyme patient who's had it in a somewhat of a chronic form, I live with the reality of that cold I got last week really could have brought me down pretty hard and fast and maybe even for a couple months, but luckily it didn't. And, um, you know, it really can come back at any time, but currently I'm doing very, very well. So... How old were you when you got it? So I am, uh, I was 28 years old, um, when my symptoms began. And like I think any typical Lyme symptom or patient, excuse me, um, I was your mystery patient for about three years until we finally figured out what it was. But, um, at the time I was 28 years old. That's a long time. And then what were your first, like, what did the symptoms build to? Like, what flavor of Lyme did you have? So um, I started having weakness in my limbs on my left side. Um, made me very nervous, obviously. Yeah. I. Um, oh, my God, she's having know, a stroke. Just, right. Right, exactly. Um, as a young woman in my late 20s, that's prime time for MS as well. So uh. I was tested for MS, um, which came out negative. I was, of course, tested for a panel of other things um, as the symptoms progressed. Um, the I would say within three months of the initial symptoms, which... I became very faint. Um, I was lightheaded. I couldn't, I can't even explain to you what it was like for me to try to sleep. Um, I can't even describe those symptoms um, specifically, but got so bad that I finally ended up in the lap of a neurologist who point blank said to me, you have POTS, P-O-T-S, um, which I think probably some of your listeners are going to be familiar with. Um this is a syndrome, not a disease, that is often brought on by um, anything that kind of hiccups your immune system. So, um, obviously, in, in my case and in many people's, it's Lyme. Some some people get in a bad car accident, and for some reason, it, it can mess with the nervous system or the immunity of the body, and um, POTS is what happens. And so, this is a syndrome where you get very dizzy, um, so basically you, your your blood pressure drops very yes. quickly. So you, you have blood pressure issues, yep. um, heart palpitations, things like that. And it can, you know, obviously it takes a toll on your your daily living style. So the, I was diagnosed with POTS. Um, that was my diagnosis for a long time, actually. It um, eventually ended up... Is there any, excuse me, is, is there any treatment for POTS? Um, there isn't a treatment for POTS because POTS is a syndrome. Yeah. And so with a syndrome, you always have an underlying disease or reason. Now, at the time, this neurologist thought that the bad cough that I had for, you know, three months or so before getting POTS symptoms was the underlying reason. It just hiccuped my immune system and there we go, I had POTS. What I understand now is that I had Lyme. Right. Um, which the initial reason that this happened, but there isn't a cure because the cure really has much more to do with the underlying disease for why you got this syndrome in the first place. So since I've been able to treat my Lyme, I've been able to treat the POTS. Um, so yeah. often in the POTS community, people will say, find your underlying disease, find yeah. your underlying reason for this, and you will be able to treat it. Yeah. Very good. And you mentioned, so you mentioned antibiotic therapy, so traditional antibiotic therapy, that's fantastic. I think there's a very useful place for that. But then you also credited lifestyle changes. So what was the biggest, or what was the change that made the biggest difference? Um, I think that I have learned to eat a certain way. You know, at first it was gluten-free and... Um, I would say that now it's more so a lifestyle of just staying away from processed foods as much as I can, eating organic, being really smart about what I'm putting in my body. And, and the other thing I would give 
um, credit to is supplements and the direction that I've had in regards to supplements that can help me through. I think I have an incredibly good regimen of supplements and diet and exercise at this point in my life, and that is what keeps me, uh, again, on the straight and narrow on a daily basis at this point. So what's your favorite supplement right now? Because I know that could change over time. Oh, geez. You know what I did this morning? I just filled up my little <laughs> double box. Your pill box? Um, PM <laughs> pill box. So I can tell you that right off the bat. Um, currently, I'm taking um, some really good, um, nice multivitamin. Okay. Um, and now, of course, I'd have to run in my, in my apartment to find it. But, That's you know, right. things like magnesium, you know, my... My main Lyme symptom when I do have bouts of it are flu-like aches. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> and magnesium really helps to, you know, kind of calm my muscles down and, um, you know, things of that nature. Organic, organic coconut oil I love for the brain health. I get nervous about Lyme disease and my brain health. Um, so I actually have a nice vitamin D3 that has organic coconut oil in it. Um, so I'm making sure that I'm getting that in every day and, um, you know, just, just, I've had some good advice. So, yes. um, if you want to go ahead and plug nature time, <laughs> that's fine with me. Sure. Nature. Um, they were actually. Yeah. Let's plug them. Go ahead. Tell people what nature yeah. time is. Okay. So, um, I was actually, so initially I had to move home because my Lyme symptoms were so bad in Boston. So I live in Syracuse. I moved home to Syracuse right into uh, my parents' house at the age of 29, which is wonderful. And, uh, <laughs> it's a boost for your first, confidence, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. The first type of um, true, I would say, consultation that I had in regards to supplements was at Nature Time here. Somebody had mentioned their name and I went in and spoke to Carol Blair and that wasn't in 2012 and I still have probably you know three or four meetings with Carol a year to talk about my supplements um, and I'm very appreciative and Carol actually is the one who I'm not going to say diagnosed my Lyme but in a moment where my doctors and I were going back and forth about my labs and the equivalent that I kept getting on my Lyme labs. Carol's had a lot of practice kind of looking at the same labs of other people. Nature Time has their own um, Lyme disease support group. And she just said to me, you know, Sarah, I really, really think this is Lyme disease. Um, and so I credit Nature Time with, with Carol. Um, she's wonderful. She's helped me with that direction. And, um, there are a lot of wonderful supplement support groups and, um, you know, other things to take advantage of there. So. so just to back up one more step, Nature Time is this wonderful health food bar store in Syracuse. And they've got every supplement known to mankind and all kinds of natural and organic products. And they have a wonderful lunch counter there as well. And it's just a great resource. Right. One thing they make available for anybody in this area is they offer complimentary consultations with really experienced nutritionists. And, right. you know, it's, it's definitely a way to help them sell their products. But these people, like you said, really know their stuff and supplements can yeah. be very, very useful. Yeah, they can, and I would credit them with much of my knowledge and understanding now of what works for me. Yeah, so brilliant. So that's a, a plug for Nature Time. If you're in the central New York, Syracuse area, they're worth looking up. So let's yeah. now get in. So we've established you've got this educational work background in health communications, and then all of a sudden Lyme gets woven into this. And how does that influence kind of what you see in the medical? You're in a unique place professionally, right. educationally, and then experienced with Lyme disease to kind of look out on the medical community and how doctors are trained and how the system works to understand what's working and what's not working. And to I, will you just talk and help us 
understand what's going on out there? I mean, are doctors complete idiots or is there something else going on? Uh, you know, they're not. They're they're wonderful. I think, you know, doctors get into um they get into this business to help people first and foremost, and they have a wonderful work ethic that gets them there. And I've seen that firsthand working with um, especially residents, um, and that was in the Boston area, and how much work. I mean, there's an 80-hour cap um, that they are allowed to work. Imagine working 80 hours, and that's that's a cap. That's to protect them and their sleep. Because they used know, to work more, right? They did used to work more, and that's a that's a federal um, mandate um, that protects them. Um, I, you know, the older physicians I've worked with used to say, you know, back in my day, we worked <laughs> 120 hours a week and walked up two miles to get to work and whatever. Yeah. But um, so they're a wonderful group um, with with a lot of. I think what we're working with as a healthcare system, and I, I'm, I can speak to that uh, much because of my degree in Obamacare and the ACA, but I won't go there. Um, <clears throat> I think we are working with actually whatever side of the aisle is you are on. We under you, there needs to be an understanding that we're working with a healthcare system that um, doesn't meet the needs of the population. Um, that we carry. And, and, and that's the case for any country. You know, there are diseases that don't have names yet. There is research that needs to be done. There are physicians that have their own families and not enough time to do all these things. And, and quite frankly, with medicine, we're just not there yet. I mean, we've made these amazing scientific advancements. Um, we really have. And I think in this kind of this culture that we have today of you know, your way right away. It's kind of this fast food environment of um, I'm the consumer and I'm the patient. And trust me, I've been there. You are the consumer and you are the patient and you need to advocate for yourself. But on the same token, understanding that um, physicians often work in constraints. And um, I think that we are unfortunately, you know, a group of people on the line um, community that really pays for that in a lot of ways. And I think when you have any kind of invisible disease, so to speak, or even when it's not so invisible and you've, you've got a diagnosis and a name for it, um, there are still workarounds that we're all working with. And that's if you're a physician or if you're a patient as well. Um, so when it comes to how they're trained, I think that they're trained beautifully. I, you know, there's four years of medical school in which they learn basic sciences and then they learn more about clinical relevance and clinical sciences and they're forced under the floor and they're um, forced to learn and then they go into residency for anywhere from three to seven years. Um, and we have a good system, but it's not perfect. And so once you graduate a physician from residency, you know, they're really still learning and any doctor will tell you that they're learning their entire career. And I think it's safe to say that we all do that. But unfortunately, they they are working with patients and they're working with our lives. And um, in a lot of ways, that's why they get paid the big bucks, right? Because <laughs> there's a lot more responsibility on their shoulders for that. Um, so I have... Um, been lucky enough to sit in on seminars throughout my professional career um, in regards to mistakes made um, by physicians and why those are made. Um, and I can tell you that, you know, especially the ones that I've heard about emergency room consultations and um, those are really, you know, the, we all need to be our own patient advocates. And I think, you know, I know a lot of emergency room doctors and they're wonderful and they are incredibly talented um, and passionate and there. But I think the constraints, especially in the ER, which is the primary care place that we all end up with, or at, usually with Lyme disease, it gets so bad at some point. I mean, I've personally been in the ER, I would say, about 10 times. 
um, when I was going through trying to figure out what was wrong with me. And not only am I trying to figure out what I'm doing and what's, what's wrong with me, but my physician and his nurses are trying to work with how many other people, I, I don't even know how many other people would be on their list at the time, but we are all working with constraints. And I think the the lesson there and the stories that I was told about mistakes that physicians are owning up to in the ER and how that happened and what the system is and how it needs to be changed. I think the lesson for everybody and every patient, and especially in a community like Lyme disease is you must be your own patient advocate. You must ask for your medical records at every visit that you have, whether it's the emergency room or your primary care doctor, you must keep those files for yourself because these systems, they don't talk to each other often. Um, and, you know, for example, I was a patient with an invisible disease pod. So at the time, we didn't know what it was. We didn't know what was facing me. And I'm going to the best hospitals in the country, some of them, which are in Boston. So I'm at Mass Gen, and I'm at Beth Israel, and I'm trying to find out what's wrong with me. Um, you know, back to back. So one week I'm at Mass Gen and they take blood tests and then the next week I'm at Beth Israel and they're taking the same blood tests because their computers and their systems don't talk to each other. In fact, the only national medical record system that exists is through the VA, is through our own government. And so when you talk about systems and how systems don't work and communications, and I could go on for days about that, really talking about a system that does not have a universal communication platform in, um, in the way of a medical record system. So, um, yeah, let let me pause here and I'm going to make a comment and then ask a question. So the the comment is one of the problems and the U S is often on the forefront of a lot of technologies. So for, and I just heard this example recently, we're on the forefront of electrifying, at the country. So that means putting electricity in homes. And because of that, a lot of our systems are these legacy systems because they were first movers on the block. Now, whenever you start a new technology, the, the initial technologies probably aren't the best or most sophisticated or more, most robust. But there's so much of the infrastructure that's based on those, it's hard to move away from it. So we have some right. countries now who are a lot less advanced, but their electrical grids are much more sophisticated than ours because they're modern. And they're not based on technology yeah. that's 50 years old or 100 years old. Hospitals are in the same situation. There have been computers in hospitals forever. And they've got all kinds of data and money and time and training invested in these legacy systems. And it's, it seems simple, right? Well, can't you just, you know, cause we do it every day. Can't you just transfer your Excel file over to, you know, to your Mac? And the answer is no, right. you can't. The data gets corrupted. Right. It gets lost. It gets, it's just not there. So that's a, and then, so the B part of this, so that's the comment. The, the question, what did you eventually figure out? How did you actually like pull together all your records? Did you keep a giant paper folder? Did you use one of these online systems? What did you do? Um, you know, I, I've been, I've been given advice on apps that are out there, um, to help with that kind of process. I did not, I did not use them. I, I quite literally have a blue binder in my office at home that has all of my files. And um, I just think in regard, and, and quite honestly, that works for me. I mean, especially, for example, I go to Ronald Strim um, at the Strim Center, who I know you've talked about on the show. Um, he's in Albany, New York, so he's only about an hour and a half, and maybe a little longer. But anyway, um, I brought my blue binder with me to my first appointment, and he and his staff were like, having a party (laughs) that I was able to provide for them because in their job, they're looking to put my history back together. They're looking to try to figure out when this kick got me and and how to treat me thereafter, right? And and so did this happen when I was 16 years old or did this happen when I was 28? You know, I mean, our best guess is 28 when the real symptoms happen. But 
I also grew up in upstate New York. I also take a yearly trip to Cape Cod. I mean, there's lime, right? There are ticks in these areas. So um, I think when you talk about your own system as a patient advocate of yourself, anything works as long as you have that information in one place that you can hand to your physician and say, please read this. Please help me figure this out. Um, and for me, it truly was, and I'm a millennial, technically. They tell me that, so I don't believe it, but it's true. <laughs> um, I am a millennial, and the paper binder system works for me. And I would just encourage people to really, um, to really get organized and really, you know, sometimes you do have to pay for medical records, and it's a pain in the butt to have to go down in a medical records office and, and get those printed out and pay for them, whatever. But, you know, it is absolutely worth it to you if you are going through something where you are a three-year medical mystery, which is often the case, and I can tell you it was the case for me. And it's the case for so many of the people that I end up on the phone with, friends of friends or somebody's cousin who just got diagnosed with Lyme, and, you know, the story goes on. So... That's what works for me. Did you just order your binder chronologically? <laughs> I did. There's nice tabs by the year. Good. Okay. <laughs> just yeah. uh, really, I I think it's so important to get into the nitty gritty details because I know when I'm even in a project, it's like, okay, I, I got the idea. And then you get down to where the rubber's meeting the road and you're like, get confused because there's so many options. Do I, you know, sort it by right. doctor? Do I sort it by date? Do I sort it by symptom? What do I do? No, no, that's a great question. I think the best way to do that is to do it chronologically by date. I think that is what helps your physician the most. Um, Certainly keeping a symptom journal and highlighting your symptoms and your main symptoms as you progress um, has also been um, really valuable to any physician that I've talked to. How did you measure your progress? Sometimes when I talk to my Lyme patients, they say, you know, it's so hard to tell. You asked me this last month and... So many things change because the, the landscape of Lyme disease and how the toxins affect you or you're just your mitochondrial exhaustion affects you can change from time to time. So symptoms will get better in one area and worse in another. And to say an absolute, yeah, like as a summary, last week I was a 7.5 and this month I'm a 7.7 is impossible. Mm-hmm. So how how did you track how you were feeling and whether or not you thought you were making progress? No, actually, the symptoms journal. Um, now I do it um, more casually than I used to. I, I used to take when I, when I was diagnosed with POTS and I knew it was about blood pressure. My physicians were asking me to do a symptom journal, so that was very. I did that very diligently. Now um, I I simply write myself an email anytime that I have symptoms, so that if I need to go back and actually track those. Um, I, I can do that very easily. I think that measuring progress to me was only done through some kind of a symptoms journal. Um, so really the less symptoms I had noted over an extended period of time, the better and more obvious it was to me that I was getting better. Um, I think it's a different question when you're talking about, like yesterday I spoke with somebody who was halfway through an antibiotic, you know, this is a friend of my cousin who's halfway through an antibiotics regimen. She was just diagnosed. Her doctor gave her six weeks of doxy, which I was very happy to hear about um, on the initial treatment. And, you know, that was my question to her was, okay, so you're halfway through, how are you feeling? And her response to me was, I have good and bad days. Yeah. And so I think, you know, an important thing to note when you're in the thick of it, which I'm, I'm, truly not anymore is how many good days are you having compared to the bad days? Because I think initially we all have this string of just bad, somewhat hopeless feeling days that once the treatment starts going, you either are hurting and it gets worse or you're coming out of it little by little and those good days start to add up. And I think once you're really in the thick of that, and you're dealing with the depression of being sick, 
and the kind of heartache of all of it, that is one way to just keep yourself um, remembering, hey, you know, I've had three good days this week. And last month I had none. Right. Or, you know, last week I had none. Right. Um, so I, I, lo- I love that. And maybe even over a month. It's like last month I had five good days and this month I had ten. You know, and, and, right. and right. so and that is how it gets. Yeah. You are getting better. You, you notice that those days, you, you go for a walk and you're like, you know what? I just went for a walk for 20 minutes. I haven't <laughs> done that in right. two months, right? And, and so I didn't have to sleep for a week afterwards, right? Right, yeah. right. Sarah, I want to return to a theme which you, you kind of, danced around a little bit, but I really want to bring this to the surface. And it's something that we've talked about before in Lime Ninja Radio in various forms. And that's being your own advocate. Uh, we did an interview a couple weeks ago, a couple months ago now, with Kevin Peer, and he talked about being casting yourself as the hero in your own Lime story and how empowering that can be rather than waiting to be rescued by by the doctors. And we talked a little bit about the constraints on doctors. So actually, I wanted to bring up this point, too, is I have a patient and she has a long, wonderful history with her her GP going through stroke symptoms from from a long time ago. Well, not actually stroke symptoms. She had a stroke and you know, recovered very well and got great care. And then she found out she had Lyme disease and her GP said, uh, don't. I don't do Lyme disease. You're going to have to go somewhere else. Mm. What's that about? Why do doctors, why are doctors afraid of Lyme disease or some doctors? Do you know? So, um, yeah, I mean, unfortunately I've seen this, um, both personally and professionally. And I think that kind of reaction is, is a loaded reaction that I would imagine has something to do with the politics of Lyme disease which I'm sure we're all familiar with, um, as well as I think it can be an overwhelming disease. Um, I, I know that... With From the physician's point of view? Is, yeah, actually, yeah, I, I think that. I think that Lyme disease is known as... I think it was known as, you know, we just, we just you know, it's it's a... It's a disease we give antibiotics and, and people are better. I think now, as this epidemic has grown, what I have seen as a patient from my physicians, and I'm not talking about Ronald Stram, I'm talking about local Syracuse physicians, you know, as a patient, the reactions I see are, ah, you know, Lyme is really complicated. It, you know, if it goes too far, there can be all of these multi-systemic um, symptoms and reactions and ah, they're, they're in, in, in that reaction too from the doctor is I can just tell is the politics of how to treat Lyme. Mm-hmm. And I think, um, I think that that reaction is what that is about. Um, just fear of not understanding it, fear of, you know, I had one physician tell me, you know, I'm going to toe the line between what the CDC says and what I hear from other, you know, sort of Lyme literate people. And I'm going to give you X amount of weeks of doxycycline, right? right? And I'm going to toe the line and I'm going to give you exactly the amount in the middle because they don't know which way to go. Right, right. And I think that is what your re- that reaction is about. So would it be fair to characterize? I mean, th- I think it sounds like there are a couple handcuffs that they're in. So they're, they've got a Houdini yeah. act to do. Yeah, so I think that's, one of the I one of the handcuffs I, is insurance and what insurance will pay for. And doctors don't want to saddle patients with a massive bill particularly when they come in with insurance. I think they're very keenly aware of trying to keep healthcare affordable for patients. So th- there's the limit of that, right? Then they don't have the agreements. Like when you go to Stram, you know it's cash only, and you kind of know what you're going to be paying up front like that. When you go right. to your normal doctor, the assumption is that the insurance is going to pay a vast majority of that. So th- I think they're right. towing that line. And then you said there's this doctors, doctors are trained to know. 
right? I mean, that's part of their residency, and they get hammered by their their clinical directors about what's this, what's this, and they have to know it right off the top of the head. And to to not know or to be unsure is a place where they're immediately trained to, okay, it's time to refer. And there's nobody to yeah, refer and, to, and right? Right. And I think, you know, jeez, oh, there's so many points I want to touch on. When it comes to referrals, um, I would even tell you that my my PCP, my general physician, is very upfront with me about not being knowledgeable online. Mm-hmm. Um, yet she wants to work together to figure this out because, right, they're coming from a place of they got into this business to care and to treat. It is so hard for a physician, and again, I've seen this firsthand, and not just as a patient, but working with residents, it is really hard when they cannot figure out what is wrong with you and help you. That is not what they got into this business for. So when they're provided an opportunity to work with you and help you, a good physician will do that. What I don't like to see and what is incredibly unproductive is when a physician says, um, is when a physician cannot admit when they don't know something and when they don't refer out, I think is actually, I think it can be tricky and so they will refer out and it's kind of this knee-jerk reaction, but I also think it's a responsible reaction and I can't blame them and I want them to refer out if they're not sure. Um, you know, the important thing to keep in mind and what I often struggled with, but I probably had a much easier time with for, than other Lyme patients or patients with invisible diseases like POTS is I understood where their physician was coming from um, because I know their families and I knew their wives and I knew their kids and I know that physicians have lives outside of the hospital um, and that they can't always help us and that they don't always have the time and there isn't always the research and the NIH isn't giving us the research money for this and at the end of the day, they are not gods, and we need to be very careful to not treat them as such. And they need to be very careful not to, you know, treat themselves as, as such. And I think that's where you get into a bit more of a consumerism um, culture in medicine now where we are the customer and we are, we are asking for, you know, a little bit of the customer is always right. The customer in this case does not have the knowledge that the physician has or the physician feels that they should have. Um, but then again, I'm much more Lyme literate in the Syracuse area than the majority of physicians here, you know, to be honest with you. And I do not have a medical degree. Um, and I learned that as a patient here. So I think, I think that this is such a loaded concept and, and there's so much to say, but at the bottom line is that these, these guys are our physicians, and they should be our advocates um, alongside ourselves, but they are not God, and they will not have the answer. And so you must be a patient who is willing to take the majority of this into your own hands. You can control things like lifestyle. You can control your diet. You can control how much alcohol you have on the weekend. Um, you can control your knowledge. I have a friend who loves to tell me, um, and, you know, she had breast cancer, and we talk a lot about what it's like to have disease, and she'll say to me, do not be a victim and read. Knowledge is power. If you can read, you can have power in these scenarios, and I think that's what's very important here. You are around doctors as they're getting trained, and you know a lot of doctors. How do you go into a doctor's office, whether it's somebody you've had a relationship or a new doctor, when you know that you've done the research, you know you know more than this doctor does, but he's got the keys to help to to get what you need to get better. How do you approach that and negotiate that so you're not coming off as this pushy, you know, I got everything off from Dr. Google and therefore I'm the expert and you're an idiot? How how did you negotiate that? How do you suggest people work within those confines? That's a great question for um, for just the culture we have in medicine today. Um, I've heard straight from the horse's um, physician's mouth that it is incredibly annoying when, you know, if a, a patient comes in 
who has Googled everything, because they think what happens is they overwhelm themselves and they self-diagnose and they create an amount of anxiety that is probably unnecessary. However, um, I would, I would, and I have treated it like this. I have just been incredibly candid with the provider or the physician and said, you know, I'm, I think that this is a really complicated thing. Um, back when I didn't know what was wrong with me, I just simply said, I, I am an energetic person normally. I am an active person. I am a positive person. This is not depression. This is not anxiety. There is something wrong, and I need you to help me find out what that is. And I think by getting them back down to a level of, this is what you're in this business for, and this is why I'm in your office. Um, without being um, demanding, I guess, um, towing that line very carefully because they do have the keys, um, I think that's the best way to go about it. I also think not just spitting out the research that you've gotten, but utilizing whatever that research is um, and kind of connecting it with your own story. So, for example, you know, I don't, I don't understand what's wrong with me, but I am incredibly lightheaded all the time. And here are a list of syndromes and diseases that cause, you know, constant lightheadedness. Can you help me um, to figure out which on this list this might be? Or do you have thoughts or do you have ideas? I think you know, getting yourself down to that level and bringing them back down to that level. Now, what's hard in doing that is that you need to be very prepared, um, not just with research, but with your requests, because you have about 11 minutes on average, and this is something I learned oh, from it's, my master's degree. It's increased. <laughs> it used to be seven. Has it? Yeah. Well, so... So they, so I've heard both, and I, I'm, I'm, a, <laughs> I'm an optimist. So I to believe <laughs> okay, and that's hope eleven. That it's eleven. Yeah. Um. So, so, and I actually think that this varies by city because when I was in uh, Boston, I got a very different care than I did now that I'm in Syracuse. I certainly had seven minutes in Boston. Now that I'm in Syracuse, and now that I'm a clear, complicated case, I get more around fifteen. But yeah. that's. You know, well, uh, let's pause here for a second. That th this is also part of the insurance. There are codes for how long you spend with an yes. established patient, and there's the complicated code, and there's the moderately complicated code, and there's the like not a problem, normal, easy code. And so, part of this is dictated by what can be reimbursed for. So, the, right, just a little and that's aside. what I mean when I talk about constraints of the physician. Yeah. Is those are constraints they're working with. Yep. Um, so, so, you it, have so, uh, minutes yeah, so let's, yeah, so let's take this and, 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 and I, I want to do the math for people. So that means if a doctor is able to code and get reimbursed for 15 minutes, if he spends 25 minutes with you, that means he's not getting paid for those 10 minutes. And right. now that doctors are employed by hospitals and their employees more than they are individual people, it's not really their decision. So that means at the end of the month, somebody comes to them and says, well, you know, you've got uh, eight hours here where you're not billing for. And this is a problem and you need to fix it. Uh, and, right. it, it, you know, it's a little bit like a lawyer and billing and stuff like that. It's really – it's – these doctors are on a ton of pressure from a ton of different directions. And I think it, it does behoove us, even though we can get incredibly frustrated with the system. It's like, let's have some compassion for the people working within the system. Yeah, exactly. And again, this is, these are the constraints we're working with. And, and I'm not going to go into politics, but when this is a hot topic issue right now, and no matter what side of the aisle you are on with Obamacare, um, called the Affordable Care Act. This is a system that we created long before Barack Obama was, was in office. And again, you can cut that right out if you want to, but this is our reality. And, um, you know, we, we, are, we are in a system of constraints, whether you're the patient or the physician. You have 11 minutes to toe the line with your physician and hope that they 
listen to you. And I will just say, too, as part of being a patient advocate, once you get a physician to listen to you, and once you have a growing relationship and dialogue and and all of these very positive things that can come out of being a mystery, a medical mystery case, you need to make sure that those physicians are talking to each other. You know, Ron Stram is incredible about saying, you know, let me know who you need these file, who you need these records to go to. Who do I need to talk to? Who do I, you know, how can I help? And I think that that is, that is something that he's able to do because he runs more of a concierge or patient-centered um, practice where he's able to take an hour with you um, at, a, at a significantly higher cost, but at a beautiful cost to you as a physician or a patient. Um, whereas these other, these day-to-day physicians, these primary care physicians, these guys that are supposed to know, right, about things like Lyme disease and how to treat, they they aren't, it's not that they're not taught the information, but they're not able to pull it out of their head in the 11 minutes that they're allowed. Right. And, and that's a problem. That's a real, that's a, that's a real issue that we work with every day in our system. You know, this, and, you know, this, go ahead. this brings up an interesting point. So this, I want to run this by you because I, I coach my patients at times. So the way a doctor works it's called a differential diagnosis so essentially you put the information at the beginning of the hopper and they immediately start filtering it that's their training so like if i have a patient who i think may have some thyroid issues i don't tell them to go into the doctor's office and say you need to test my thyroid i tell them okay list your symptoms and group them together oh i'm fatigued i'm losing my hair and i'm gaining weight and I know that's mm-hmm. going to push the doctor through a good part of his part of his differential diagnosis. And one of the things he'll be thinking right. about is the thyroid, and he'll just automatic or she right. will automatically test the thyroid. So that's one of the things you can do as a savvy. Well, I, I, actually, that's what I ask is is that an okay way to go? I mean, it's a little, you know, you're not lying about symptoms, but sometimes I tell them to add in a symptom that isn't there. It's like let's let's weigh the thing a little bit but it's still the doctors you know they're going to do their test they're going to feel the thyroid they're going to do that and if, if they think it's appropriate they'll do the test you're like you're not going in there demanding it but you're definitely leading them in that direction yeah and i think i actually think it's it is a bit savvy because i think i also think i feel very strongly that as a patient i saw this a few times i would actually walk in and say these are my symptoms. Do you think it's this? Because that, because I did the research and because that's just the kind of nerd that I am. And, and <laughs> unfortunately, more often than not, that physician would say, you know, it, it probably is. So let's do a test on that. And let's also consider these other things. Which, right. Thank God they were responsible enough to do that. Um, but I think leading them, you know, in a direction you, you think it is without actually naming it. Um, isn't the worst idea in the world. You might want to tell that line a little bit. Um, and just also, it just, so much of it depends on the personality of the physician too. If you have someone with a very big ego, they don't want you to tell them what is wrong with you. They want to tell you what's wrong with you. And if they can't tell you what's wrong with you, they're probably not going to admit to that. Um, and if that's your scenario, if there is anybody listening where that is their scenario and they just feel like they're not getting anywhere with their physician, you should really consider finding somebody else because you're the one that has to go home every day with these symptoms. You're the one who's losing the lifestyle that they once had and you need the best support system that you can have. And that is another example of being a patient advocate. You know, my doctor missed, my current physician missed my Lyme disease. In fact, she got into a very kind of heated scenario, I think, with her um, PA because the PA felt because my Lyme results were equivocal every time that that really meant something with Lyme disease. And my own MDs thought, you know, I see this all the time, which scares the the Jesus out of me when I heard her say that. But (laughs) I see that all the time. And that's part of the problem with the education on Lyme disease. And and with the PA and I pointing out to her, you know, this really is an issue. And now that I have Lyme disease tests coming back positive for my genics and shockingly from a Western blot recently, she is there by my side saying, I am sorry that I missed this. I 
need more education. We all need more education on this. And she helps me with whatever I need now. Now, I think I'm very lucky for that, but I gave her more than one shot because she wasn't an egotistical physician who was just saying, you know, or not admitting that she didn't know. And she wasn't somebody who was saying, you know, she listened to her PA and she listened to my, to me when we had these concerns. And anyway, I could go on about that, but they're not gods. They're not perfect. Um, but they are, they are physicians. They do hold the keys and we need to, we need to work with them. It needs to be a team effort. That's a brilliant way to bring this conversation to a close. I want to give you the last word. You know, if you want to mention any of the support groups you're part of and how to get to hold of those in, in the central New York region, um, anything okay. else you want to leave people with kind of, you know, here's the, here's the bumper sticker. So one more thing I just, I would want to speak to in regards to being your own patient advocate is really, um, exploring you know, once you have that Lyme diagnosis, which can be very overwhelming at first, exploring community groups, um, support groups. You know, in Syracuse, we have a group in Chittenango. We also have a group at Nature's Time. Um, I believe there is another group uh, working its way in somewhere around Camillus. And I think it's really important to reach out to these groups. I think often, um, you know, for me in the case of POTS, as well as in the case of Lyme, these groups were where I got most of my reliable information. And again, you know, I hate to say that the healthcare system isn't reliable. That's not what I'm getting at. But I think these people have lived this reality um, and they can give you many, many pointers. I spend an interesting amount of time now being the person who's had Lyme disease that other people call for advice. And when I was first diagnosed with Lyme disease, I called other people for advice. And that was probably one of the most helpful things I could do. Um, I was able to get the name of, you know, Carol and acupuncturists and um, people in the integrative functional medicine world that could help me um, through these people that go through this every day. And you're, you're often in a place as a patient where you're hitting a wall with your doctor. Um and I think that this is a way to work around, and this is where somewhat of my health communication passion comes from. It's just talking to people. You know, they have made mistakes. They've been through this before. One of the nicest things about being on the other side of that phone call now is I can just quickly tell somebody, here's what, you know, here are some dietary changes really, you know, that you could just start doing. Whereas I took two years to figure that out. And you don't want to necessarily repeat the mistakes of others or, you know, just kind of in that way. Um, I think that. So do you think it's important to find somebody with similar symptoms or do you think just anybody can help with the Lyme? Do you know what you I'm know, saying? I think, yeah, I, I think both. I think, you know, starting out with a group. Um, you will find people that deal with similar symptoms as you. I mean, there are people that have raging migraines and headaches from Lyme. I am not one of them. I can't speak to how to deal with that best. Um, another example is fatigue. There are so many people that deal with unrelenting fatigue, and, I, and I'm not one of them. My true symptoms were more aches and body and joint and things like that. And so finding people among those groups who can really speak to your your symptoms that are debilitating, um, I think, is incredibly, incredibly important. And so, you know, going back to your physicians are there and they hold certain keys and, and things like that, but they aren't the only answer, um, especially in this. I have come to love integrative medicine and what it can do. Um, and, and, and those are things that you control in your own home as well, again, your diet and exercise level and things like that. So um, I just would say as a patient advocate um, that that's a big lesson to learn, that we, we live in a culture where, you know, doctors and lawyers and people, you know, with these, these big titles um, professionally are sort of the god on that subject. And I think that any of, any of the physicians that I know 
in fact, all of the physicians that I know um, and am friends with would tell you, uh, no, that that's just not the truth. I'm I'm not a god on the subject. I've had more education than you, and I certainly have a baseline. But when it comes to something as specific as Lyme disease and other very specific diseases, um, they're they're not gods. They are not knowledge. Um, wells on this subject and and I think what you need to do is create a community around you of people that are um, and I would I would say that that is where I found a lot of my success I've kept physicians in my life that um, have helped me along this path that are there for me still that are willing to do whatever needs to be done to keep me on the straight and narrow and I keep people in my community that are supportive of that as well and you know, I, I do quite well now. So that's fantastic. You you remind me. This conversation may never end. You remind me of a couple of <laughs> know, of, of important points. And this is I heard this early on in one of the interviews, and I, I I'm a little chagrined that I don't remember, so I can credit the correct person. But she said one of the best things she ever did was keep a photo in, of her when she was healthy in her file, so in your blue binder. So, so, And when you're starting off with a new doctor saying, look, this was me before I got sick. I'm not oh a lifelong God. crazy person, That's right? Me. You know? And it yes. just helps the doctor visualize you not pale, not, you know, losing weight, yeah. not weak, not mentally confused. So, oh, that's an awesome idea. Isn't that a great tip? See if you can plug her. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I have to go. I have to go back and listen to all 126 interviews. So I think it was in the first month or no, two, actually, no. w- way early. So th- that's. Well, actually, I listened to your early stuff because I wasn't, you know, I wasn't diagnosed then or whatever. So if I hear it, I'll let you know. Uh, that, Not that you know, I think we'll be able to do that in that amount of time. But, <laughs> that yeah. that would be that would be super helpful. And the second thing I totally forgot, so that's a good way to wrap up. <laughs> so Sarah, yeah. Sarah, yeah. you've been incredibly generous with your time this Sunday morning. I really, really appreciate it. And I, I I'm going to contact you about some other projects. We'll talk after we wrap up this interview. Uh, because oh, of your it. love of love integrative it. medicine. So I have a couple uh, projects on the on the burners okay. right now that I would love to talk to you about. So yeah, th- thank absolutely. you very much. And and again, just thanks. Thanks for your knowledge okay, and helping Mickey, us. Thank you so much. Yeah, sort out what to do with our doctors and how to treat them as a team member rather than as an adversary. Absolutely. Absolutely. I really enjoyed this episode. Um, Sarah's insight into how doctors operate was really enlightening for me. And, you know, what she said, that Lyme disease is overwhelming for doctors as well, uh, really helped bring that home. It was an interesting point, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was. We expect doctors to be on top of everything all the time and really that's the expectation that they have through medical school and that their instructors have for them and so once you get into a fuzzy area with Lyme disease it can really uh, tear away at a physician's confidence especially especially at the slow progress that some patients make so not only is it outside their wheelhouse, so to speak, in terms of what they're comfortable treating, then you don't necessarily see good responses or contradictory responses to treatments. And doctors can quickly just back off and say, you know what, this isn't for me, and and just shy away from it. And indeed, that is what happens. My conversation with Sarah really brought to mind a segment of our interview with Dr. Horowitz, Dr. Richard Horowitz, the Richard Horowitz. I don't think he needs too much of an introduction in the Lyme world. And that's episode number 45. And he gets into one of his dreams is to evolve how physicians are, physicians are trained, how med students are trained, to give them more flexibility of thinking and to really train them to think outside the box in his uh, MSIDS model. I believe it's NSIDS, 
multiple, yeah, it's MSIDS model, where there are multiple causes in a disease, not just one cause for one disease, which is the current training. So he's really talking about these uh, complex cases like mold exposure or heavy metal toxicity or Lyme disease, and especially then when all these things come together in one patient. And so you may clear out the Lyme disease, but now you still have this active mold exposure going on, or you have active clearance of heavy metals, and they the symptoms can continue. They can be the same from cause to cause to cause. And his his gruesome analogy is that if you have 19 snails in a foot, you don't just pull one of them out and say you're cured. I'm reminded of when I stepped on a nail of, of my own when I was a small child. Pretty gruesome, huh? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, the the interview with Dr. Horowitz is another great resource. It's episode number 45. Just going over to LimeNinjaRadio.com. And the easiest way, actually, is to click on the show notes for this episode with Sarah McNamara. Yep. All right. So if you like what we are doing here at Lime Ninja Radio, we'd appreciate it if you would support our efforts by subscribing. Go to LimeNinjaRadio.com and you'll see the subscribe button under the featured episode. Yes, please. We have three levels. It starts as inexpensively at $4 a month would go a long way to help support Lime Ninja Radio. Then we also have another level at 8 and 12 bucks. So if you can, please take the time to head on over there. Hit the subscribe button. We really, really appreciate it. Thanks so much. And thank you, Aurora, for all your hard work on this episode, pulling everything together. And lastly, as you longtime Lime Ninjas know, this podcast would not be complete unless we left you with the Lime Ninja fact of the day. Did you know... Ninjas don't need a Twitter account because they are already following you. Lime Ninja Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized medical advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's medical situation is unique and Lime Ninja Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized medical advice. Lime Ninja Radio is not licensed to render medical advice and should be considered simply the public opinion of Lime Ninja Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific treatment options are not intended to address any listener's particular medical situation. As always, contact your physician before considering any new treatment.